All right. Well, the title of tonight's message is Taste and See. Taste and See. As we're thinking about even this title, obviously it comes from a famous verse here in the Bible that we're going to cover in Psalm 34 here tonight. But when it comes to matters of faith, I was thinking about tasting and seeing. When it comes to these matters of faith, oftentimes you think of faith in terms of what you know. Uh, understanding that you might have in terms of just academic or cerebral intellectual knowledge that you might have about the Word of God. But the truth is, is that knowledge apart from experience is empty and lifeless. Just knowledge by itself apart from actually applying that knowledge or experiencing what you're learning to be true about God and His Word through a personal relationship with Him. And you think about, by way of contrast, knowledge that's reinforced by experience that is transformative. It's life-changing. So instead of being empty and lifeless, which is knowledge all by itself, knowledge cannot give life. Knowledge that is applied and believed and accepted and and you've put your trust and faith in it, that knowledge, when it's made practical and applied experientially in our lives as we live life with God and follow his, allow him to make, uh, have a transforming effect on our lives, it can change the very essence of who we are as we have a new identity in Christ the moment we put our faith in his finished work on our behalf. The Bible says that we're taken from being dead in Adam and we're made alive in Christ. We go from being lost to being found and so at that moment of faith positionally everything changes we're no longer identified with who we used to be and who we were in Adam the Bible says we're new creations now in Christ and we're identified by our standing in the family of God in Christ and so God when he looks at us positionally and we could say judicially he says the debt that was owed for all of your sins it's been satisfied so judicially I can make a, de- a judgment that says you are now right in my st- in my eyes you're in a right standing with me because the shed blood of Jesus Christ the payment of Christ has been applied to your account. And because it's been applied to your account, your account is now positionally in good standing with me and you have now been born into something that you weren't a part of before my family. You're now a child, a son or daughter of God and I'll never let you go. But while that is true positionally, practically there's this process that begins on the point of salvation you know salvation is a point in time as you think about salvation from the penalty of our sin that debt that we owed it was only satisfied once because there was one debt we don't satisfy that debt over and over because when Christ died he bore all of the sins of the world for every man woman and child past present and future he bore them all at one time on the cross and the value of his life and the value of his blood shed on behalf of sinners like you and I the value value of his death was greater than the debt that was owed by all men's sins. So there no longer remains a payment that needs to be made for sin to satisfy God's justice and God's righteous and holy standard that says there has to be a satisfactory payment made for the debt of man's sin. That's been satisfied once and for all. So that's a point in time with ongoing and permanent results. But as we think about the concept of salvation, when the Bible talks about salvation, there's salvation from the penalty of sin. But then we talk about salvation from the power of sin, seeking to still influence our lives as we live as God's children. So by way of identity, we're God's children. But that doesn't mean we're free from the influence of of the sin nature trying to control and manipulate us from within to influence us to put self first and to do whatever suits us, whatever we feel like, even if it's in opposition to God. It doesn't insulate us from the influence of sin from without, the sin of the world and the temptation of the devil seeking to derail our thinking and to get us to continue to live in a manner that's incompatible now with who we are as children of God. But God's desire is now that we've been born, we have this infancy where we're born into God's family, we're children, we're forever children. But as we're now children, God's desire is from that point in time forward not to keep determining whether or not we're children. You're born once. Once you're born, you're a child. You're either a child by way of birth or you've never been born, so you're not a child. And in God's family, you're once and for all a child. But now he says, I want you to grow grow up. I want you to mature in your faith. I want you to grow in your faith. I want you to develop and have this transformed life where you go from who you were in Adam and you slowly allow me to make changes in your thinking in your life so I can make you into 
Something that is completely different. This new creation in Christ. That you can live that out by way of practice, not just by way of position. So it's, it's critical that you understand the difference between position and practice. There's so many passages about how one gets to become a child of God and all of them say that the only way to do that is through believing in what Jesus already did for you as he shed his blood on your behalf. But then there's a lot of other passages about growing in our faith and having that victory, that practical victory over sin in our lives so that we can grow in our understanding and our knowledge, but in our experience, our opportunity to learn more about God and have a greater level of intimacy with him. And so if you think about knowledge that is reinforced again with this experience, experiencing God in a, in a real personal, practical kind of a way, that is transformative so that at some point in time as God slowly grows you, as God slowly works within you to out with the old and in with the new, to become less and less like self and more and more like him. And as that transformation takes place over time, often what will be true is that you'll look back at your former manner of existence and you'll say, I don't even recognize that person anymore. That's how it should be. And too often, we look back and we're living the same way now as we've always been. We haven't allowed God to actually make those changes in our lives and to transform us the way he wants to. And so there's sort of, that's where experience or this walking with God comes into it. You see, the Bible repeatedly encourages a personal, intimate, and experiential walk with God, a life that is drawing closer and closer to God, not a life that continues to keep God on the back burner, not, not a life that continues to only fit God in where it's convenient, where God is the absolute last in terms of priority in your life, and it's only when there's no other place to turn that we turn to him and we rub him, uh, we sort of pet him like a magic rabbit's foot and say, God, help me now because I have nowhere else to turn. And, and God doesn't want it to be like that. He wants us to have been including him in our lives all along so that as we're going through our day, we're praying our way through our day, we're talking to him, we're letting him talk to us through his word, we're investing time in his word, we're coming out on a Wednesday night to hear teaching from God's word so that we can grow closer to him, draw nearer to him, and in essence experience him in a more, again, personal, practical, and intimate way. Now, as you think about this personal, intimate, experiential walk with God that is being encouraged by the word of God, there's probably no passage that speaks to that idea more famously than Psalm 34 here, but specifically this phrase, and maybe raise your hand if you've ever heard this before. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Maybe just raise your hand if you've ever heard that before. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, that's talking about experiencing God on a very personal and practical way. Taste and see. And so even as we talk to young people, very often we talk about this idea that to keep God at a distance and kind of see God as somebody who's maybe important, but he's not important enough to include in daily life. Maybe he's important for somebody else, but he's not important to me. Maybe he's somebody that maybe old people could be close to, but a young person like me would never be close to God because God isn't close. God is distant and far away. How could I be close to God? How could I be close to God if he lives somewhere in outer space? But you see, the God of the Bible is everywhere present at once. The God of the Bible lives inside of every believer. The God of the Bible is with us and says he'll never forsake us. He's a very present help in time of need. He's not a distant and absent God. He's a present God. He's a God who wants to live life with us. So one of the verses we would talk to young people about is we'd say, have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Are you just kind of going through life kind of riding on the coattails of your parents' faith? You, you haven't any faith of your own. You're not living life with God personally. You're vicariously living life through your parents' faith. And as you see them talk to God, in a sense, you feel like you know God a little bit. And as you see them maybe hear from God by reading his word, maybe you feel like I, I maybe am, a little bit of that is rubbing off on me. But you see, God doesn't have grandchildren. God only has children. And so you can't vicariously live through somebody else's faith. 
God wants you to live in a way where you personally are experiencing God for yourself in a real and intimate and practical way. So we say to kids, have you tasted it? Have you taken a bite of it for yourself and seen that God is good? Or is it your sister's faith that you're relying on? Is it your auntie's faith that you've been kind of impacted by, but you've never made it personal for yourself? Well, that's where this passage comes from, is Psalm 34, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And what it means is to discover and experience the goodness of the Lord. That's what taste, the word for taste, that's translated taste, it means to discover. And to see means to experience. So discover and experience the goodness of the Lord. Now, question, is God good? The answer is yes, God is good. How often is God good? All the time, right? And in every way, God is good. To everyone, God is good. So that's not the issue. That's a statement of fact. God is good. But is he good to you? Is he good to me? Can you say, God is good. He's so good to me. He's a good God because I have tasted and seen the goodness of God. Well, let's take a little bit closer look at this famous exhortation and the context that surrounds it from Psalm 34. Now, I'm assuming most of you have turned there, but I'll give you a second if you haven't. Psalm 34. We've got to pick up the pace a, tough, a touch here. So we're going to get into the first section here. The first three verses start out with blessing the Lord. So we're going to get to experiencing the Lord, but we don't start there. The psalm starts with not experiencing the Lord, but blessing the Lord. Let's read the first three verses. I will bless the Lord, how often, at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Now, a couple of things. As with many of these psalms, David effectively begins with a conclusion or summary because exalting God, making God bigger, magnifying God, praising God, it doesn't happen first. It happens as a result of experiencing the Lord, seeking the Lord, trusting the Lord. Some of these other things that David's going to talk about later in the psalm, but a lot of these psalms, he just kind of puts the punchline, the conclusion right out front, which is the result of all of that is we should be praising the Lord. And so he does that here again. Now the primary focus of this psalm is a believer's personal relationship with God. A part of that personal relationship with God is, with God is this desire to want to make him bigger, magnify him, praise him, put the spotlight on him. Now, there's various aspects of this relationship that are addressed in these remaining sections of the psalm, but each reinforces the goodness of God and the benefits of depending and trusting in Him or just trusting Him. Now, as you think about this, the natural, logical, and reasonable response to this recognition, now, what are we recognizing? How good God is? We're recognizing His provision for us. We're learning to trust Him. We're seeking Him. We're enjoying that practical intimacy with Him. But as we're seeing more about who God is, we're seeing His character more, and we're enjoying that intimacy with Him, the only natural, logical, and reasonable response to that is to praise Him. So that's where David begins with Psalm 34. His, he starts with, this is the only natural sort of ending point to all this, is that we would be praising God. Now, if you were here recently, we were talking about this new song, singing a new song, recently in the Psalms. And so as you're thinking about singing a new song. We were talking about this, your life song would be singing as you're progressively learning more and more and seeing more and more about God. You'd be continually singing this song of praise in a sense that's extolling and lifting up all of these wonderful attributes and provisions of God. This awe, this growing sense of appreciation and awe that you have for God, that would become the song, the new song of your life. And that song would be continually changing in a sense because you'd be progressively growing in your understanding and in your experience with God so you'd have more to sing about. You know, it's not like the songs that people sing that are overly rep repetitious and it's just the same thing repeated over and over again. Now, if, if that lyric was saying one time, could it be a good lyric? And the answer is, yeah. Could it be true? Yeah. Could it be encouraging? Yes. But does it lose its flavor a little bit if it's saying over and over and over and over and over again? And so you think of the value of a new song. Well, as you're going through life, do you have just one note to sing about your God and Savior? Do you have just one melody to sing? Just one verse to sing? 
or as God is showing up in your life, as he's answering prayers, as he's leading and directing, as you're growing in him, as you're learning more about him, don't you have some new lyrics to sing? And that was the idea. And so as we're thinking about this song of our our lives, it's ultimately though a song that, though it may have many different lyrics, it's a song of praise. It's a song that's lifting up God and putting the spotlight on him. And that's what David is saying is the only real reasonable response to a man or woman of faith is that you would be praising him. And so then he first describes his personal response of praise, and then what does he do? He encourages others to join him. Now let's look at David's response first. He says, I, so he's not talking about everyone else, but what do he say? I will bless the Lord at all times. Is that true of your mindset? Where you're consistently praising and blessing the Lord and his goodness? Certainly we all could grow in that area, right? How does he say it a second way? He says it a second way. He says, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. Now, this is convicting, isn't it? His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Don't tell me about it. Just take a mental inventory right now about the things that were in your mouth today. The things that came out of your mouth today. Now, God knows all of those things, right? So you don't have to tell him about the the words and the thoughts and the meditations of your heart that came out of your mouth today, the things that you were thinking about, talking about, meditating on, fixating on. What were those things? Now David is saying those things should be a continual song of praise. Now we're not being mystical about this. We're not saying that practically speaking you can go through the day only ever singing God's praises. Not literally, but in terms of metaphorically, in terms of um, lost the word, in terms of just the essence of it though, in your thinking, you can be singing God's praises every moment of the day. Mentally, the word was figuratively. So we have literally, figuratively. So figuratively, you could be doing that even though you're accomplishing your work. You're answering a question that somebody asked you about something that has nothing to do with the things of faith. This isn't to be taken as some kind of a, wow, I just gotta get to the point where every word that I speak is a praise to God. That's not the idea. It's that continually, as a matter of course, throughout the day, my mind, my attitude, my perspective is singing God's praises. Now, will that manifest itself in the actual literal words that come out of your mouth throughout the day? Yeah, it'll, be, it'll impact that. Some of the words that you say are gonna be informed, well, I would say all of the words that you say are gonna be informed by that spirit-led, spirit-directed perspective even though not all of the words will directly have anything to do with the things of faith, they'll be influenced by the Lord working and directing in your thinking. But you will actually have some of the things that you say that are gonna be giving God praise, lifting God up and making him bigger. So we have that, I will praise, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. A third way of talking about this, my soul shall make its boast in the Lord. You know, Paul says something like this where he says, if I'm gonna boast in anything, it's gonna be in the cross of Christ. It's gonna be in Jesus Christ. If I'm gonna boast, it's gonna be to boast in him. Who he is and what he's done. That's what I'm gonna brag about. You know how sometimes you brag about things that you are excited about in your life? You boast about the new thing that you got. You can't wait to tell people about, you know, come see, take a look at the new truck, the new... I'm not trying to step on any toes, whatever your thing is. Okay, that new fill in the blank for yourself. And you can't wait to tell people about that. Sometimes you have, you want to boast about some accomplishment of somebody that you're related to. And, And so your child does real well at something, you want to boast in that. You want to just tell people how proud you are of that. Now is that always sinful? No. It's not wrong to... When, it, when we say pride, you know, it can be taken in a literal pride sense that God hates, but just to be happy or supportive of some accomplishment that your child has had, while at the same time giving God the glory for it, that's not wrong. But you might want to boast in that. And the idea here is my soul is going to boast, and the idea is only in the Lord, not in part in the Lord. My soul is going to boast only in the Lord is the way that should be taken. Now, who's going to respond to that kind of an attitude? 
Well, people of faith. And how are the people of faith described? People who are presently enjoying the Lord, they're described as the humble shall hear of it and be glad. And does that mean every believer will hear your blessing the Lord at all times, his praise continually being your mouth, and a soul that's boasting only in the Lord? Does that mean every believer is going to hear that and respond uh, favorably to that? The answer is no. A carnal believer doesn't want to hear anything about how you're enjoying the Lord because what are they? They're miserable. See, apart from a right vertical relationship with God, it doesn't matter if you're saved or not. Man is miserable and life is meaningless. A believer who is bucking the Lord, who is resisting the Lord, a believer who is not letting God work in their thinking is miserable because God gave you a conscience. God gave you his spirit living inside of you to convict you. God gave you a creation to scream at you as you're going through the day about how big he is and how small you are, how much you need him. So you can't get away with just ignoring him, rebelling and rejecting against him without suffering in the process. There's, no, there's not one believer who knows the Lord, who is living life apart from the Lord, who is truly happy. That's a fact. Whose soul is restful. Whose soul is at peace. Not one. Not for a minute. Now, is there pleasure in sin for a season? Sure. Is there temporal joy in chasing after the baubles of life, the things that Satan and your flesh say will make you happy? Sure. But is it real joy? Lasting joy? Life-sustaining kind of joy and peace and hope? No. It's hopeless and you know that. Because that, that whatever little fleeting amount of joy, it's gone. It's here today and it's gone again tomorrow. Then what? Then you're chasing after it again. And you're chasing after it again. And you're chasing after it again. And there's no real victory in that. There's no lasting joy in that. And so, who wants to hear this though? The humble. Who is that referring to again? A spiritually minded believer. Is that you? If you're spirit influenced and spirit led right now this moment, you'll have humility because the only way you'll be trusting God is because you see there's no other way. It's only through trusting you and staying connected to you, abiding in the vine, that you can ever produce fruit in my life, Lord. That's the only way my life will ever count for anything is if I stay connected to you in humility. Now, these terms all involve an external response that's observable to others. This isn't something that's hidden. And it represents a way of life. This isn't something that's a transient whim in your life. It's at all times and continually. So it starts to describe and characterize your very existence. So then you think about your testimony your testimony, if it's continually and at all times in an ongoing way of living, having these, this kind of an attitude of praising the Lord, it has an impact on others directly and indirectly. And so you look at those phrases in verse 3, O magnify the Lord with me. It's a direct call to others to join in on this. A direct call to others to join in on this. So you see the humble shall hear of it and be glad. How do they hear of it? Because it's emanating, it's oozing out of your pores. It's being reflected in your life. And so the humble hear of it. And then you think about encouraging others. Now that's very directly now. This is a direct impact or testimony. Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Now this is the first of three times where he says the phrase, the, where the word O, O and then H. O-H. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. This is one of the emphasis or emphases of this psalm. So the exhortation here, it involves making God bigger and lifting him up. This represents the individual mission of every believer. Do you see that as your mission to lift God up and make him bigger? But it also serves as the collective mission in the context here of the nation of Israel or national Israel, but in our context here today of collectively of everybody, of every person in the body of believers, the, the local church. This is our collective mission to say this to each other. Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. So what is our mission? Our mission is to be living in the midst of a crooked and perverse world among whom we shine as lights how do we shine his lights? By being a reflection of magnifying the light of Jesus Christ into the places and spaces that God directs us. So that's the first exhortation here. It's the summary of all of this. 
blessing the Lord in the first three verses. Now we'll get into the things that kind of lead to that outcome. That's the only reasonable outcome to be blessing or praising the Lord. Now let's see some of the ways that we get to that. Starting with verse 4 through the, verse of in, ver, to, through the end of verse 7, we have seeking the Lord. Seeking the Lord. Verse 4, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. Now, other people, I'm, I'm assuming this is spiritual believers that he's talking about reference, in reference to the humble, but other believers, they looked to him and what happened with other believers who were spiritually minded. They, they were radiant. Their faces were not ashamed. That was the result of them looking to the Lord, seeking the Lord. Verse 6, this poor man, talking about himself again, cried out, what happened? The Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord, this is a statement of fact now, encamps around all those who fear him and delivers them. He said this about himself. He said this now about others who are seeking him. He's saying now as a general summary, God protects, delivers, provides for everybody who is his own. God undertakes in the lives of those who are seeking him. Encamps around is a, is a phrase of fellowship, of intimacy, of proximity. When it says in John that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the word means God tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. He encamped with us. It's a phrase of intimacy, of proximity, closeness of proximity. It's not, it's not a phrase of distance. It's a phrase of proximity. And so all of those that are experiencing that closeness and intimacy with God are in view here, and they're described, generally speaking, as those that are seeking the Lord. So David now, he describes the decisions and experiences that produced or contributed to his current attitude or posture of continual praise for the Lord. And of course, we're seeing here first that he starts with his decision to seek the Lord. Now, here's another example of individual volition being exercised as it relates to matters of faith. I refer to this as a positive volitional response. Man is given every opportunity to thrive spiritually. God does not force himself on anyone though. God does not force himself, does, does not force you to seek him, to experience life with him, to trust him, to depend on him, to grow in him. God doesn't force any of that. So God, he encourages it. He empowers it in the sense that when we're looking to him and we're trusting him, we as Christians, at least in the church age here, are empowered by the spirit of God to make a life of godliness possible. Where we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, we've been given the ability to become partakers of the divine nature. Through what power source? Through the power of the Spirit of God. How do we access that? We access that by trusting God. As we're trusting God, he's free to work in our lives. As he works in our lives, he does it through his strength, through his power, so that we can then experience life the way that he intended. But again, God's, God desires this intimacy. God de desires this sense of dependency on him, but he doesn't force it. So you have this volitional decision on David's part, just like each day, you have to choose you this day whom you will serve. Are you going to include God? Are you going to draw near to God? Are you going to lean into him? Are you going to allow him to be a part of your day today? Or are you going to do it yourself apart from him? Those are the two choices. And it's not just one decision for the whole day. It's that decision being made over and over again throughout your day. Now that's a, pos a volitional choice that has to be made. Now if it's positive, then it's going to involve choosing to lean into, involve, trust, and depend on the Lord. And David's decision here is described three ways. I sought the Lord. Now generally, in people in general, they looked to him, meaning every per these other people of faith, and then this poor man cried out. These aren't things God did to him. These are decisions that David made to respond to the Lord in faith. Now compare this to other biblical passages that talk about making a decision a positive volitional decision or response to seeking, out, seeking after the Lord. One of them is found in 1 Chronicles 16.11. It's, it's dictated to the whole nation of Israel. And it says, Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face evermore with an exclamation point. This is critical, they're told, as a nation. 
But obviously, individually, that's true too. If you go back to Psalm 27, back up a couple of pages here. We're in Psalm 34. Go back to Psalm 27. Talking about deciding, making a decision to seek the Lord. Psalm 27, we're looking for verse 4. We covered this a while back. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek. Now what is he seeking? Proximity, intimacy, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord, for how long? All the days of my life. To inquire in his temple, for how long? All the days of my life. Proverbs 8.17 says, I love those who love me. This is speaking from God. And those who seek me diligently will find me. Meaning, can God be found? Yes, because he's present. He isn't hiding anywhere. He's right in front of us. Turn to Acts chapter 17. This is the famous message that Paul gives to some Gentiles on Mars Hill. As he talks to, as he talks to them, he makes this speech. And in this speak, he talks about seeking after God and how God can be found. We're going to pick up in verse 26. He's giving this sermon. He's trying to convince people here in this community in Athens to respond in faith to Jesus Christ. Now, they consider themselves to be logic-driven people, intellectuals, and so he appeals to them on that basis. And he talks about how they are trying to cover all of their bases and how they even have a idol that they worship that is known as the unknown God. So all of these gods that are known that the sun God, all these other kinds of things, gods that have names, but then they have a catch-all God that they worship called the unknown God. And he says, that's the one I want to introduce you to. You worship this unknown God without knowing him, and him I want to proclaim to you. So all these other gods, not right, but you kind of got it right here when you were worshiping the unknown God because there is one God and only one God. You've been worshiping him in a sense without even knowing who he is, and he's Jesus Christ. So we'll pick up in verse 26. And he, talking about God, has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they, for what purpose? What's God's purpose in creation? So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. How close is he? He's just as close as Jesus Christ was right there. He's as close as personal faith, faith in a personal God, in the personal work of Jesus Christ on your personal behalf is what he's saying. So, we could go farther, but that's the idea. That is God's part in creating creation of mankind is that man could find him, that they would seek after him and find him, but there has to be a desire to seek him. Hebrews eleven six says, but without faith it is impossible to please him. Now catch this. For he who comes to God, now is that God making you come to him? No, you're having to exercise a positive volitional response. He who comes to God must do what first? He must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him, there's your part in it. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God, who is doing that, you are, and he will draw near to you. He's not forcing you to have a life of intimacy with him. He wants it. He's, he's stacked the cards in your favor in a sense, but he's not going to force it. So we move on. Now, what is God's response to seeking him? That's also described here. Well, it says he heard me. He delivered me. He made them radiant. All of those, they that look to him, he made them all radiant. Think of that. Think of that even in the sense of when Moses got to be in God's proximity. How many of you remember this story? He went up. He spent time directly with God. He came down from Mount Sinai. He spent more time with God in the tabernacle. What happened to Moses as a result of his proximity to God? His face shone like the sun, right? People could see it. Now, I'm not saying that, in, that God's going to do that in every instance, literally. 
But figuratively in his life, if you're enjoying that intimacy with him, is it going to be hard for people to see God in your life? No, you're going to be shining brightly, a reflection for others to see. What did they say to Moses because he was shining so bright, because of his proximity and intimacy to God, with God? Can you cover your face? It's bothersome to us. I'm paraphrasing. That's not a direct quote. What do people in your life say to you when you're shining brightly for Jesus? What do they indirectly say to you? Can you cover your face? This is making us uncomfortable. We don't care for that. If you're willing to go back to talking about football, then this is going to be fine. But if you insist on continuing to talk about the hope that's in you, if you insist on continuing to lift up and magnify and exalt the name of Jesus Christ, this isn't going to work out. You're not going to be welcome here. Is true or not true? A absolutely true, right? Why? Because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Man is not desperately seeking after God. So, God is where the focus of the, the, the believer's focus should be, regardless of circumstances. He cares for you. He loves you. He is for you. He is never against you. He faithfully undertakes to provide all that is needed. So you think about, he delivered me, he made them radiant, or I skipped this part. He saved me, and he encamps all around. So what was the takeaway there? That as I'm seeking after God and I'm entrusting my care to Him, I'm finding all of my provision and strength in Him, then what do I get as a result of that? What, what do I see as a result of that? I see His provision in my life. Now, it's primarily, God's interest is primarily focused on my spiritual well-being. He didn't promise that life was going to be wonderful all the time, that I would be spared from the trials and tribulations and hardships of life. But he says that I would be able to go through those trials and tribulations and hardships with peace, joy, perspective, hope, contentment. That's what he promises. But would I ever seek God if I didn't first see that he cared for me, that he loves me, that he's for me, that he's provided all that is needed. You have to come to know your God so that you'd be interested in living a life with him in dependence on him. So then we come to this next section where we have praising the Lord or blessing the Lord, then we have seeking the Lord. Then this next section here in verse eight, it's not an early section so much as it is a verse, is experiencing the Lord. Now, seeking the Lord experiencing the Lord, we're going to see fearing the Lord and then trusting the Lord, these all contribute to praising or exalting the Lord or magnifying the Lord, which is where he started. But let's look at verse 8 now. Experiencing the Lord. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And you'll notice maybe in your version, at least here in my version, exclamation point. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. How does he trust in him? It's synonymous with tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Now, notice the emphatic nature of this. That's what exclamation points are all about. This is critical to your well-being. So as David is saying this, he said, seek the Lord like I'm seeking the Lord, but he didn't say it as emphatically. He says, praise the Lord with me, and he's saying that pretty emphatically, but not in the same exact way as he's saying, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And he's saying that emphatically in the sense that the blessing to the man who trusts in him is something that you can't do without, that he doesn't want other men and women of faith that are in his proximity. Remember, he's a leader, a national leader of the nation of Israel. So as he's saying these things, he's saying this is critical to your well-being. Now, I started off by telling you that taste here carries the idea of finding out, discovering, determining, or perceiving. So discover that the Lord is good. Now we look at the word see. It refers to experiencing something presently and personally. See this for yourself is the idea. So discover something to be true as you see and experience it for yourself. Now what is that? That the Lord is good. 
See, Peter used the same language in 1 Peter 2, 2 through 3 when he says, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Now he says what? If. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Meaning, you're never going to want to do this until you first see the grace of God. Grace of God as it relates to the penalty of your sin. The grace of God as it relates to his provision for living the Christian life. For power over the, or for victory over the power of sin in your life. So, if you've tasted this, if you've experienced this for yourself, then do this. Now, in this context, it's, we're talking about finding out or discovering in a personal and experiential way that God is good, that the Lord is good. Now, this is what the believer is supposed to discover and experience. Believers often develop a distorted view of God's overall character and disposition toward his children. God is good. He's good all of the time. There's nothing about him that's not good. So he has many different characteristics or attributes, but God is fully good. Each one of God's attributes describe him fully. They're not, God isn't a God who's a little bit of this and a little bit of this all mixed together. A little bit of this and a little bit of that all mixed together. He's, he's, when he's good, he's all good. When he's loving, he's all loving. Powerful, he's all powerful, not just somewhat powerful. Each one fully describes him in a sense, but of course collectively they give us the, the full picture of who our God is. So as you're thinking about tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, we have this sense of sometimes that God isn't good because he doesn't prevent certain things from happening in our lives or he hasn't stepped in to eliminate this struggle that I'm going through or this trial or he doesn't wipe out all the evil. Again, forgetting that we're a part of that and that to wipe out evil, he would have to wipe out us. But that's a separate point. Then we start to think God's not good. What do we base that on? Our circumstances, our situation, what we're facing in life at the present. Sometimes we start to get a sense of God where we start to think he's not on my side. God is somehow against me. And the truth is, God does at times bring testing along in our lives or allow testing in our lives. He does sometimes chasten his own, it says, where he chastens his children in love. But I'm convinced that the vast majority of hard things that you're facing are a direct consequence of the taint of the sin curse on the world and the people in the world and on your own choices. As you're living through the consequences of your own choices, how dare you put that on God? That God is not for me because I'm having to live through the consequences of my own bad choices. How is that on God? What you should be doing is praising God that he hasn't, he said he's be faithful to never leave you or forsake you even as you are suffering through the consequences of your own choices. How God says that he wants to use even every circumstance in your life to draw you nearer to him, to conform you into the image of his son. How he says that he'll give you all the grace that is necessary to face every trial in your life, even the ones that have been self-created. But we start to see God in a distorted way. But God is good, and that's what we need to experience. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, what is the result of that? The result of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good is that you're blessed. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. See, trusting in God is directly connected to discovering and experiencing God. He's saying the one who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that person is going to be trusting God. And so, in a sense, as I discover and experience God, what is it going to lead me to do? It's going to promote me trusting God. And as I trust God, I'm going to be blessed. The question is, are you ever going to trust in anybody who you haven't experienced, you haven't tasted and seen, you haven't discovered and experienced life with that person and seen the goodness of that person? Are you going to trust that person? The answer is no. You have to first be convinced that God is good by learning about your God, learning to depend on him. And as you experience him, experience life with him, discover him in a personal, tangible, intimate way, you're gonna learn to trust him more. We move to the next section here, fearing the Lord. So we have praising the Lord, or blessing the Lord, seeking the Lord, experiencing the Lord. Now David starts talking about fearing the Lord. Let's read verses nine through 14. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, another exclamation point. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, 
But those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. And to, to the lion thing there, in case that doesn't make sense, uh, young lions are independent. They're fending for themselves. So why are they lacking in suffering? Because when you're depending on yourself instead of depending on God, you end up lacking. You end up wanting. But those who seek the Lord by way of contrast shall not lack any good thing. Now come you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So we're going to tackle this section, fearing the Lord. Now here, again, another emphatic exhortation. How do we know that? We have an exclamation point. This is critical. This is, again, being urged as something that's absolutely critical to one's well-being. Now fear here, fear the Lord. Oh, fear the Lord. There's our second O, or third O. So we have, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now we have, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Now, fear involves having a reverential awe and respect for the Lord. We're not talking about, this is, this is an older English sense of the word. When we're talking about fear, it's more about respect. It's about reverential awe, that I'm just awestruck by God in such a sense that I have a deep respect for God. I have a reverence for God. It's not that I'm quaking or shaking in fear like I would tremble in fear about the dark or something like that. Now, there is no upside to making the Lord small or underestimating his grandeur. As you think about fearing the Lord, it's having this appreciation, this awe, this proper sense of reverential awe for just how big God is. That's one takeaway as you think about having a reverential awe for God. You have to keep him in perspective by knowing more about him and just how awesome he is and how big he is. You're never going to be benefited from mentally thinking God is smaller than he is because you're going to be tempted to not trust him like you should. If you see how big God is, you're not going to ever be overwhelmed by any trial that you might need his assistance with in your life because he's always going to be bigger in your mind than the bigness of any trial or the, the, the size of any trial that you might face in your present day-to-day life. Now, as you think about having a reverential awe and respect for God, think about the opposite of respect. The opposite of respect is disrespect. And the opposite of reverence is irreverence. So if you think about disrespect and irreverence, where do they originate from primarily? Well, they originate from pride, thinking too highly of oneself. Now that directly correlates with thinking too little about God. That's the, the num- num- number one issue there is that I'm thinking too highly of myself, my own abilities, my own power, my own strength, my own intellect. I'm thinking too little about God. Now, as you think about a reverential awe for God, how is this beneficial to believers? What does it say is the corollary between having this reverential awe, the sense of the, of the bigness of God in a sense, this respect for his largeness? Well, it says in verse 9b, there is no want to those who fear him. And 10b, those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Notice that it says any good thing. Just like if any man asks, if any man... If we, I'm blanking out the the, ref, the uh, quotation, but it's a verse that says something to the effect of, "God will not withhold any good thing to those who love Him." I think is how that ends. Who's got it? Who who has it in their mind? Put you all on the spot. What's that? Who walk uprightly? He will not withhold any good thing to those who, that walk uprightly. Okay, thank you for the help on that one. So as you're thinking about that, it's good. The key thing there is good thing. Now why is this true? And it's true because it represents a posture of dependence on God. When you're fearing God, having this reverential awe for God, then you have this posture of dependence. And God, it's dependence in who though? A God who promises to supply all that is needed. So as we think about even Psalm 23 verse 1 that says, because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. So that's a posture of what? Because he's the shepherd, because I have this reverential awe for God, I have this sense of, 
lacking nothing. There's no want to those who fear him, fear him because our trust and dependence and our hope is in him. Now, verse 11 shows us that this is something that can be, can and should be taught to others. Uh, David, he says, come you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. How? Well, by speaking about a reverential awe for the bigness of God, for how, 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 mir- how miraculous God is, how wonderful he is, how incredible he is, as you use any of those superlatives about God. You probably would say that, but what would be the most effective way to teach? through your own life, through your own example, through your testimony and witness to others. So it can and should be taught to others. Now, this uh, having a, pre- a present tense rever- reverential awe, it alters the believer's thinking and manner of living. So that's the conclusion of this section is that as you're thinking about having this reverential awe, it's a byproduct of trusting God, having experienced God, having sought after God, as you're doing all of that and you're having now a greater understanding and again this awe for God, it affects your thinking. And as it affects your thinking, then you're operating this fear of dependence on God and he as he gets a hold of your thinking, your thinking then directs your what? Your actions, your, the manner of living that you would have and how is that described in verse 13? Well, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Does that come first? No, that comes following this seeking the Lord, experiencing the Lord, and fearing the Lord, having this awe for the Lord. What is the result of that posture, that mindset? Well, that you should keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Verse 14, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. As the priority? No, as a result or a byproduct of this mentality that has preceded it. Now we end with this last section about trusting the Lord. So we have, he starts with the punchline. As I trust the Lord, as I experience the Lord, as I fear the Lord, as I seek the Lord, I'm going to have this posture of praising the Lord or blessing the Lord at all times. But t- trusting the Lord, verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The righteous are reference to somebody presently trusting the Lord, walking by faith. The faith's The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, by contrast, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. God can't honor that. The righteous, a man walking by faith in a right standing with God, relationally we're talking about, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. I know more language about trusting the Lord. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, presently righteous in a right standing with God, not just talking about just all people of faith, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them all. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken, a messianic passage, an allusion to Jesus Christ and how none of his bones were broken. Verse 21, evil shall slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants and how are they characterized? None of those who trust in him. None of those who trust in him shall be condemned. What is this section about overall? It's about God's dealings with those who are trusting the Lord. What that would involve. So you think about a trusting and dependent mentality. It naturally accompanies a reverent awe of God. It naturally accompanies the one who's fearing the Lord. The one who's experiencing the Lord. The one who is seeking the Lord. That person naturally has this mentality of trusting God and depending on God. Now, trusting God was directly connected to discovering and experiencing God's goodness. We already saw that in verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So as I discover and experience in God's goodness, what happens? Blessed is the man who trusts in him. It results in me trusting in him. So we're back to trusting him there in verse 8, trusting him here as a description of this section here, verses 15 through 22. So trusting him, it causes the believer to follow God and live life as directed by him. Now life independence on and directed by him will be what kind of a life? It will be a righteous life. And you see that word used several times here in this section. Your life isn't righteous because you are righteous. Your life is righteous because you're in a right standing with God and he is leading and directing you in a path that would be right. You're not directing your own path into what is right. God is the one who leads us into paths that are right. 
For, for what purpose in mind? For his name's sake. Not to promote self, not to lift self up, not to make self look better, not to distinguish self from others, but as a byproduct of trusting God, being led and directed by God. As I'm led and directed by God, the paths are always straight. He always makes straight the paths of those who are trusting him. Not because I'm making my path straight. And so you see several spiritual blessings that are identified or they're associated with this right standing or this right present relationship with God. Again, this is talking not about justification. This is talking about sanctification, a present right relationship with God. What are the blessings or the things that are associated with it? And we're gonna fire through these quickly. 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. There's that intimacy, fellowship. His ears are open to their cry. Another description of fellowship. The Lord hears more fellowship and delivers them out of all of their troubles. He intercedes in the lives of those who are presently trusting him. Does he promise that that's going to be physically? No, but spiritually, he giveth more grace as the trials of life grow greater. There's always more grace to deal with whatever circumstances that we're facing. My grace is sufficient. Verse 19, the Lord delivers him out of them all. All of these troubles. He guards all his bones. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants. Now that's an ongoing present tense scenario. They're not even talking about a point in time justification where God redeems men and women of faith who trust in God's solution to deal with their sinfulness. Redeems in the sense that he, we're talking about a present relationship with God. None of those who trust in him shall be condemned. Those who are presently trusting in him, they're not under any kind of condemnation because they're operating in fellowship with God. They're in a right standing with God. They're living a life then as a byproduct of that standing that will please God. There's no condemnation in that. So then you think about the contrast. Well, God cannot endorse, support, work, or fellowship with rebellion and rejection. Now, how is rebellion and rejection or that mindset or posture described? Well, verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Verse 21, those who hate the righteous shall be condemned, meaning God cannot respond favorably to that. And you think about evil, it's nothing more than sin or what is wrong, and that's in contrast to God himself who is completely right. Now, one thing I hope you take away in this section about trusting the Lord is that it's a byproduct of humility. There's humility associated in trusting the Lord because you're not leaning on your own understanding. See, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. It's not what trusting in self that creates a, a way of life that's pleasing to God or dependent on him. It's by seeing that I'm nothing, that I have nothing I can do in my strength, own strength apart from him that makes me humble. That's a sign of humility. That causes dependence. That dependent posture is a posture God can work with because it's humble. And God then can lead and direct and undertake in that life to bring himself glory and to grow you or mature you in your faith. So we see that in verse 18. The Lord is near to those who have a broken that word literally in Hebrew is shattered or smashed heart. A broken, a shattered and smashed heart. God can be near, he can work with that. He saves such as have a contrite spirit. And contrite there means crushed, humiliated, subdued, or brought low. God can work with that because that kind of a person with that kind of thinking is not depending on himself anymore. That person is willing to trust the Lord. Now, come full circle here. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Remember the direct and indirect exhortations that we've seen here. But it started with magnifying the Lord. It probably should have ended with that. If you start with seeking the Lord, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, or experiencing the Lord, fearing the Lord, and then trusting the Lord, there's no other rational place to end other than praising or blessing the Lord. And so as you follow that train of thought, I hope it's been encouraging to you. This tasting and seeing that the Lord is good is just part and parcel of experiencing the Lord. But it's just one part of living life, a life of dependence on the Lord, trusting the Lord, seeking the Lord, having a heart for the Lord, experiencing the Lord, having this awe, growing in our awe of the Lord, this reverential respect of fear of the Lord. You put it all together and what are you left with? What I would encourage you tonight, I would encourage you to join me
and magnifying the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. May that be the drumbeat of this church even. Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we can spend in Psalm 34. Pray that it would be encouraging and useful to those who are here. And just remind us that you want to live life with us. And that that comes, uh, results in a life that would magnify you or praise you. But it would only be true if we're seeking you, we're fearing you, we're trusting you, and we're experiencing you. Pray that that would have been clear tonight in Jesus' name.